The Inner Queen began life, as many of you will know, as a play written by John Dryden and Sir Robert Howard, which was given its first performance in 1664, with incidental music then by a composer called John Bannister the Elder. The plot was set in the courts of Peru and Mexico, but before the invasion of the Spanish. As far as we know, Dryden never intended but his play The Indian Queen with its imaginary account of warring Inca and Aztec rulers would become an opera or a play with music. Though when we're invited to believe that Peru and Mexico are somehow neighbouring countries in this story, it does stretch geographical credulity in a way that perhaps only opera does. Um, the Indian Queen, as we know it now, was commissioned for the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane. Alas, no longer with us, and one of the two licensed theatres in the late 17th century. Uh, Dryden's tragedy was cut down from an original 1,400 lines to around a little over half that, about 750, and Henry Purcell was invited to write the songs that were to be interspersed through the performance together with the overtures and entr'actes to cover scene changes and music for dances. This of course, sadly, was to be Purcell's last major work, and it contains less music, dancing, and spectacle than perhaps some of his earlier works for the stage, possibly because it was written for the Theatre Royal in Covent Garden, who had been abandoned by many of their senior talents. It been one of those wonderful theatre rows <laughs> in which the older generation had apparently walked out, and leaving a younger, perhaps less experienced generation, um, in dispute with the management of the older generation, uh, and perhaps Purcell took pity on the level of experience they had. It also seems almost certain that the music was unfinished when the composer died at that absurdly young age of just 36. What we aren't entirely certain of was that the Indian Queen was actually staged after the composer's death. If it was, it was probably in a botched version, and we don't think that Purcell, though his brother is figured here somewhere, may have had a hand in the version that was eventually staged. But there is one piece of contemporary evidence that whatever was staged was a success. An account of the work reports, the Indian Queen formally acted with general applause at the Theatre Royal, but now turned into an opera and many times of late represented at the same theatre was a huge success. Well, the Indian Queen we're going to see tonight is not exactly Dryden's or Purcell's, though Purcell's music is there throughout what is in fact Peter Sellers' production of the Indian Queen. And what he's done is effectively to complete the incomplete original, and he's moved the time frame, uh, and you can see the opera that you're going to see now in stills on the screen to my left. He's moved the time frame to that moment when the Spanish conquest of the Americas began. So... The principal character is the Indian princess Teku Watson, who's married the conquistador Dom Pedro de Alvarado. Uh, well, we have a quartet of guests to prepare us for this evening's broadcast. Lawrence Cummings will be with us. He conducts this new production here at English National Opera, and he'll be talking about Purcell's music. And he'll also be performing an aria with the tenor David Webb, who's covering the role of the conquistador Dom Pedro de Alvarado. We're also joined by Peter Sellers, the director, who has been happily here at the Coliseum for over six months as a kind of resident director. You may remember John Adams' opera, uh, Before Christmas. But our first guest is one of the strong and stout friends of all our pre-performance talks. It's the theatre historian, Sarah Lenton. Will you please welcome Sarah Lenton?
Sarah, suppose that we'd been lucky enough to be at the Theatre Royal uh, to see whatever was eventually performed. What would the audience around us have been expecting to see? Um, entertainment. And uh, John Dennis, the critic of the period, suddenly noticed a change in the demographic uh, audience in the 17th century. He says, whereas before, you know, they were quite bright, and uh, a leisured gentleman who didn't do much in the day, so came to the theatre to be excited uh, intellectually and, and enjoy the wit and, and understand the, the way the, the, the verse was moving. Now gentlemen uh, work for a living and uh, they, they come to the theatre to unbend. He actually uses this word in the 17th century. I didn't know they used such a word. And so they want entertainment. And, and so this is what, what they got. And if there was a slight diminution in the verbal uh, wit... Uh, this was understood to go straight over the heads of the audience because they were sitting back after a, a ghastly day in the bank or in the law courts. <laughs> but they also, presumably, as part of that entertainment, wanted spectacle. We oh. know from the other theatre in Dorset Gardens that this was an age that loved big, spectacular, showy shows. Yes. I mean, spectacle is a proper pleasure of theatre, like it is of a James Bond film, actually. Um, but it was particularly uh, exciting in the 17th century because, of course, the theatres were covered first time Macbeth. Uh, you suddenly realise in, in Macbeth it could be done at the Globe, it could be done in a covered theatre. Traps things coming down from the ceiling. There's a ceiling. Things can come down from it. Uh, this is very exciting. Wonderful grooved scenery which could slide on tracks slide back, another scene behind, all done in about a second, another scene, another scene, Vesuvius could erupt, all that stuff. But the most exciting thing, and I think this is something we've only just realised with the Sam Wanamaker Theatre, is uh, a covered theatre is lit, obviously, with candles and uh, oil lamps, but it can be made dark. That's, that is the astonishing um, inherent contradiction in a covered theatre. You can have dark scenes. Suddenly, you can blow the candles out. And that's what they were doing in the Sam Wanamaker Theatre. And suddenly, there was just one uh, wax uh, chandelier burning, giving an intense light in darkness. And over and over again, especially in Purcell, you get a, a cave of dreams, a mask of night. And it's the thrill of being in the dark. And all this um, spectacle, dancing, singing, light and dark, I'm splitting it up. I, this is wrong. It all comes down to an intense experience in the theatre, particularly, I think, with Purcell, who is brilliant at creating an intense picture, picture in sound and a picture of an interior landscape too. He'll use all the tricks of the trade of the theatre composer can have a hiss of snakes, a, a sound of toads. You'll hear that in The Indian Queen tonight. But it all actually becomes an intense interior landscape and I feel, but this is me, that it's a description of the interior landscape of the Indian Queen herself. A non-singing role and yet somebody who's strange past we're slowly learning as the show goes on. Had the audience come to see uh, an opera by Purcell or had they come to see a play by Dryden for which Purcell had composed music? Uh, they come to see a show. Uh, I think they would have called it an entertainment. Uh, nowadays we call these things semi-operas which is a, a nasty uh, and w word that doesn't sort of do credit to what Purcell achieved. But what everybody knew was that they wanted to see what they would like to have called an opera. Uh, but given uh, the political situation in the London theatre, uh, you must remember the actors had been um, 
off the stage all through the Commonwealth when the theatres were shut. They came back to the theatre, did not want to share their stage with a load of singers just because the upper classes had picked up a taste for opera while they were in exile during the Commonwealth, okay? So they said, Ooh, well, if we're on stage, the singers aren't. So this ridiculous art form, semi-opera, was invented. So we do an ordinary show by Shakespeare or Dryden, and then we throw in musical interludes, and the actors come and do the play, clear off, and the singers come and do their entertainment. It's a ghastly format. It didn't survive Purcell, and it is one of the griefs of musical history that we had an opera pro composer ready to go in England, and he was offered this appalling format. The fact that he made it absolutely glorious is just luck. Would the original audience have thought geographically very specifically about this? I mean, I made a joke about Peru and Mexico I being neighbours, but would they have also thought about it in terms of, of the century, or century nearly two centuries of history of the colonisation of Latin America by the Spanish, the conquistadors and the extraordinary massacres that attended No, there. no, they wouldn't have worried about that for a second, I wouldn't have thought. I mean, Dryden set this in Mexico because it was exotic and he wanted... I mean, this is 30 years before Indian Queen. His Indian Queen is 1664, is it not? And um, he wants good sets, he wants cute native dances, he wants exotic costumes, you know, all that stuff. But the plot, the Dryden plot, is the normal dynastic and emotional muddles of upper classes and it could be set in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Mexico as we see or anywhere else where, you, where the costumes are available um, and they're conf we're a maritime nation, I, I can't believe that English people didn't vaguely know where Mexico was um, but I, I can't help remembering seeing a costume design for the Chinese princess in Orlando Furioso where she had a headdress of feathers. And I, what's all that about? And as I worked it through, I thought, oh, yes, she comes from China. Someone said to the unfortunate designer, that's the East Indies. Oh, yeah. Of course, the East Indies is like the West Indies, isn't it? Oh, very likely, yes, yes, yes. That's America, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Native Americans. Oh, feathers. Yes, you're quite right. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of that, at least in the, in the theatre design. Um, but I, I don't want to impugn the audience. They, they presumably know that we knew where South America was. The other thing that is, that is striking is in 1664, Charles II had been back on the throne. Mm. He seemed to be fairly secure and likely to go on his travels again. By 1695, he's dead. His brother James has been removed from the throne. William and Mary have been graciously invited uh, under a good deal of supervision and control to take the throne. Uh, and we have become a rather different kind of very... Protestant nation. Mm. And indeed, you could argue that England at this time is divided in, in a way that had certainly not been in 1664. Do you think all of this finds its way into this entertainment? Oh, Christopher, I wish I'd talked to you before the show. Uh, I, I've read Nick Rogers' Maritime History of England. It was a Dutch invasion. They all pretended they were on James II's side. They looked round for him, he'd gone, and suddenly the Dutch were there. We wanted you all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, leaving aside that, that sideline, on history. The play was written 30 years before. 17th century audiences were allowed a little bit more political comment than they were allowed after the licensing acts in the, in the early 18th century. But I don't see anything in this libretto that suggests 
a divided nation particularly, anything more than the normal dynastic plot. What I did notice, which is why I've got this bit of paper on my knee, was this rather charming quote from the Native Americans as the show opens, talking about presumably conquistadors. Their looks are such that mercy flows from thence, more gentle than our native innocence. This doesn't suggest to me a very acute political <laughs> take on things. Um, the only really major effect that King William, the, the, the Dutch invader, uh, had on theatre was that he wasn't as musical as the Stuarts and Purcell's jobs at court started drying up, so Purcell was in the theatre finding extra work. Sounds to me as if the world was well lost for a rhyme rather than the political moral in your, in your quotation. <laughs> Sarah Lenton, thank you very much thank indeed, very as much. always. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our second guest is really the man of the moment. It's the director of The Indian Queen. It's Peter Sellers. Will you please welcome Peter Sellers? Peter, was this a, a huge ambition of yours to work on the Indian Queen? Is this something you've been harbouring for a long time? Uh, 25 years. It's taken many different forms, and finally we got it put together here. And again, what's so interesting, and just the, I can't help but say the conversation you've just had is so interesting, because there's so many mysteries in what the piece actually is, how it works, what theater meant and was in that time. I mean, bizarrely, I mean, the one thing I would emphasize is in England, as then as now, a lot of people are making a lot of money from their plantations in South America. So a lot of people knew exactly. Their coffee plantations, their sugar plantations were going full blast, and they were able to go to the theater because their plantations were sending them an income. And the and the first performance of Indian Queen, the, the, the Mrs. Brace girdle wore a giant feather headdress that Afra Ben had brought back from Latin America that week so, so in, and, and handed to Dryden and said, put this on Mrs. Bracegirdle. So in fact, the, the links were all, Britain was then as now completely linked and particularly financially, and uh, the banks of England were running the show. And, and, and so this was very, very present for the audience. You know, it was, yes, a distant and strange entertainment, but it was also their plantations. And it was also this sugar and chocolate that everybody loves here. The coffee that everybody loves in London, uh, of course, is all from Latin America. Peter, how did you... When the opportunity came to work on on Indian, how do you set about pr pr providing your own version? We, we assume the work is incomplete. Um, what have you done? <laughs> well, I escorted John Dryden quietly to a corner, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and 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 just although again, what I love about this period, this is my favorite period of British theatre, uh, is that it was after the theatres were shut for a generation. <laughs> this sense that theatre could do two things: one is it could, when the restoration dramatists emerged, they did these unbelievably personal plays about what happens between men and women. Stuff that you would not discuss in polite society. Stuff you wouldn't want even your neighbors to know. And suddenly, Congreve is putting it right up front, in your face, what men and women are doing to each other. And that's a really new thing in the history of drama. There's no other drama of any people or nation that is this direct about those sexual relationships and about the, what's at stake in those marriages. At the same time, we're coming from this incredible period of the great age of 
British English metaphysical poetry. And so Purcell is setting George Herbert, which you're going to hear in one minute. It's this incredible sacredness Purcell lived through, and his generation lived through not only the theaters being shut and music not allowed in church, but the plague and the fire. So everything is fragile, delicate. The anthem that we start with, I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live, because that may not be very long. It's very fragile, it's not triumphal, it's searching, it's asking questions, it's delicate. It understands how delicate everything is. And then, as you said, the other thing about theater at that point is anywhere but England. We've been here forever in this nightmare nationalist backlash. So now Purcell sets, you know, Act Two of King Arthur on the North Pole. You know, and we can and Dryden's plays are in Central Asia. They're everywhere but here. And partially that's because you have to get out of town, and partially it's because to say real things you have to use metaphor. And I think Dryden in particular was using Mexicans as a metaphor for persecuted Catholics. And you have this question of the Tower of London being extremely active, of course, during the lives of these people, and you watch what you say and you watch how you say it. And so setting it at the other side of the universe in some strange pagan court is the only way you can talk about spirituality in the theater and not be arrested for some deviation of doctrine. So it's a, it's a very powerful thing that Purcell wrote shaman ceremony after shaman ceremony, and Dryden gave this incredible religiosity and profound spiritual life to Roman and Celtic rituals and, and rituals from the Middle East and all of these things that are not Christian, and never putting a Christian ritual on stage. So there's a very extended sequence of shaman ceremonies in part two of Indian Queen tonight, and that's because Purcell wrote sacred ceremony after sacred ceremony that were not Christian. One of my favorites that you'll hear tonight, when you're calling the spirits, the spirits love sweet things. Now, any Guatemalan curandero right now could tell you that. You know, a healer, you have to prepare incense with this sweetness in it, and it draws the spirits. And then the next thing is the air with music gently wound because the spirits can't enter our thick air and you have to wound the air with music and that creates the opening that the spirits can enter and so that connects you to Rumi saying the wound is where the light enters this incredible idea of it's the wound that allows the spirits to come in, and it's the opening for a healing and for a spiritual transformation. Now, all of those things you could find in an actual Guatemalan ceremony or in Chiapas right now today in Central America. And the amazing thing is that Purcell and his collaborators were writing this in the 1680s and 1690s, and the anthropological exactitude of so much of it is shocking and very moving and beautiful. Running through the whole evening are a selection of astonishing passages from 
a novel called The Lost Chronicles of Terra Firma, performed by Marixel Carrero. Say a little bit about this novel. It won't be one I suspect that all of us are familiar with. Yes, well, uh, I would just say that in the, in the 1980s, uh, my country was busy uh, funding death squads in Latin America. And, and so we were all trying to find out what we were not being told in the popular press. And so you were trying to say, what are the artists saying? What are the artists doing? And so in my generation, we were trying to discover Latin and Central American artists. And I read this novel in 19. 1982 by uh, Rosario Aguilar, who's written 13 major novels in Nicaragua, and she wrote this during the revolution in Nicaragua, and it's her basically escorting a reporter from El Pais through the, you know, uh, Europe, that is, visiting Latin America, through the Nicaraguan revolution, and as chapter interludes, she has the first women in the first moment of contact between the old world and the new world. The first women at this moment of encounter. So she has the wife of the first Spanish viceroy, who was a notorious monster. She is this lovely, sensitive, thoughtful person who had to set up the first, Mexi the first European kitchen in Mexico. Hello, this is a tomato. <laughs> and meanwhile, the, the daughter of one of the, of the Mexican uh, 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 chieftains, who's offered as a war bride to the head of Cortez's army, Don Pedro de Alvarado, who, of course, is a famous conquistador who committed atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. She marries this man, and she falls in love with him. She's supposed to be a double agent and be telling her people military plans that she derives from pillow talk. He's the most beautiful man she's ever seen. They have magnificent sex and beautiful children. She stops reporting to her people. He sends to Spain for a proper white wife, and she's cast aside. And it's a very moving story. Uh, and I've taken the novel and put Purcell's music all the way through it. And it's really Purcell's music for these women. And the, the two things that I've done that are probably uh, the most intense are, uh, the, yes, it's definitely a very feminine story. And usually the story of the conquista is told as a male project of armies and setting villages on fire and massacres. And in fact, um, while the men were destroying a culture, the women were creating a culture. This new culture, the mestiza culture, the mixed culture. And at the same time, the real crisis was not just a material crisis. It was more a spiritual crisis. It was the Spanish arriving in the name of the all-forgiving Jesus Christ and Holy Virgin and massacring people. How do you pray to the Holy Virgin after that? And the Mayans who are told from one day to another to lose all your gods and pray to this new Jesus Christ. Everybody, where are they now? It's a spiritual catastrophe. So I've taken Purcell's anthems, church anthems, because at the age of 19 he was made organist at Westminster, and had to, as a teenager, reinvent the English church music tradition. 
And again, as I've mentioned, these anthems are not affirmative or, or tub-thumping. It's the opposite. And you'll hear the, the anthem blow off the trumpet. Wherefore, wherefore, wherefore should they say? Wherefore should they say among the people? Where, where, where is their God? And you just picture people in the rainforest at night after these massacres, Mayans and Spanish, saying, where is our God? And I think that's really the power of having Purcell's music tell this story. Purcell is so personal, and his private music has so much heartache, melancholy, and deep grief in it. Not all my torments can your pity move. Your scorn increases with my love. I fly from love's sickness in vain, for I am myself my own fever and pain. And of course, for Purcell, music is a healing ceremony, as it was for the Mayans. And so you'll hear some music you know very well, like music for a while, which we know as a lovely encore in a vocal recital. And of course, it's actually healing music that goes into trance with its healing snakes. Purcell wrote it for a production of Oedipus Rex with John Dryden as music to bring the spirit of Laius back from the grave to tell everyone who killed him. And again, with something sweet to attract the spirits and then this haunting trance. And the Greek healing ceremony, which is why we have snakes winding around the staff in front of every pharmacy, it's the healing serpents that are coming till the snakes drop, 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 drop. Which in a recital you say, what are these snakes doing here? But of course you realize Purcell wrote this spiritual healing ceremony. And so here in the Mayan context, the snakes do drop from the trees and the snakes are also the healers. So. All of those cultures meet in really unexpected and surprisingly beautiful ways. And it's one of my favorite things about how culture works. Don't whisper this to the critics, but you know, one of my favorite things is in front of every Chinese temple, there are lions, lion statues. And they dance, oh, and they dance lion dances in China, all over China. Oh, there we go. There are no lions in China. <laughs> That's how culture works. What's amazing is what Purcell is writing in England with his friends in 1695, actually put next to Mayan mythology, does match up. Peter, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Who could resist if you haven't got a ticket ringing up your best friend and bringing them now immediately <laughs> to this evening's performance? Um, our next guest is Lawrence Cummings, who conducts this performance of the Indian Queen. Will you please welcome Lawrence Cummings? I feel bound to ask you, before you started working with Peter on, 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 on this, did you know the Indian Queen? Was it a piece that you too had cherished ambitions for? I 
did know it, um, not terribly well. Um, we did parts of it in a summer school in Croatia that I was teaching on, because um, in a way, it's, it's in its existing form, it's rather perfect for a week-long course, because there isn't so much music to tackle. So we, we did it... Um, on a, in workshops and, 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 and in class situations. But no, I, I've never had the opportunity before to, to actually perform it as, as, as a work, and it's um, been a thrilling experience. G give us some sense of what it's been like to work with Peter on this production. <laughs> I, I know that's an invidious question, but you... I'll go downstairs. No, no, you can, you can tell the truth. You can tell the truth. Well, it's a wonderful story for me because um, I first met... Peter in 1997 when we worked together on Theodora at Glyndebourne and I was uh, a young harpsichordist at the time and playing for these rehearsals which really changed my life. Um, I knew that I loved Baroque music and I'd studied of course the rhetoric and all the things that go with Baroque music and delivery of the performance and you know how important the text is with the music and the marriage of the two um, and it's one of those things to know something on a technical level and then suddenly have a light bulb moment where you experience it on an emotional level and that's what it's like working with Peter because um, you uh, when you have a sufficient rehearsal period, you're able to sort of delve into the various layers of, of pieces of music. And, you know, you start off thinking, well, this is a beautiful piece of music, and you end up thinking this is the most amazing, life-changing piece of music, because you, you've gone so deep into it, and that's, that's a very moving experience. But it's been my misfortune not to work with Peter until now since 1997 so that has been a real um uh, fulfillment of an, of an ambition of mine because as i say it had such an important effect on me as a, as a young player and this this experience has been intense but i mean that as i say you know to my students that means you're doing it right and um we we worked together over seven weeks to to put this version of the piece together. It, 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 it was in pre-existing form already, but Peter's been very flexible. We've changed certain things around, added little bits in, taken tiny bits out, and, you know, the usual, the usual process, um, which might not sound like the usual process to you, because, of course, normally you think of an opera as being an opera. But this piece, more than any other, um, is, is, has, has many, many options. You know, you, you, can, you, can, you can adjust things, and, 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 and also so, so few things are actually dictated by the score in terms of dynamics and things and, and pauses and, and, and bending of the tempo, we, which we know that they did, but, of course, we don't know where they did it and how they did it, so it's, it's, it's a voyage of discovery. Are we going to hear all the music that we do know that Purcell wrote for the Indian Queen. Um, and what are we going to hear in addition? We know from what Peter said, <coughs> some of the great church anthems, but what else? Well, it's, it's a little bit difficult to say, um, to answer the first part of the question, because um, the, the sources that we have are so confusing. And um, it was Thomas Betterton who put it on after Purcell's death and definitely mangled some bits up so that the, 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 the vocal writing is talking about a bit of the plot that actually hasn't happened yet, and and it it really just doesn't make sense in a lot of in a lot of places. But I mean, I'm glad it was a huge success for them. Um, but he it, obviously it, slept, my witness. Yes. <laughs> um, but we're very faithful to the to the material that we do have, 
Um, and then the, the anthems that Peter has added in are some of them familiar to us uh, as uh, if you if you're a churchgoer you know they're still performed on a regular basis in church um and, and others not you know they're, they're more rare uh, the same with the, with the solo songs and um e extra little scenes some of them will be familiar to you um and others i hope will, will become familiar to you because they're really the, the music the power of the music is extraordinary and it's just been, you know, some of the some of the pieces. In fact, I didn't know myself, and or or I'd heard of them, or you know, it's that thing of looking at it in a library, which is always a beautiful experience, but it's nothing quite like actually putting it on. Um, so uh, the, the 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 standard of of the music is is fantastic. And what kind of resources do you have in the pit? Well, um, we uh, a lot of the music of this period is is for the continuo department of the orchestra um that is to say um the bowed bass instrument and then the plucked instruments and then the keyboard instruments that are also plucked so we have um a wonderful uh cellist and gamba player uh, jonathan reese who's who's playing the the, the the bowed continuo and in fact he's playing on a on a viola de gamba which is the instrument with seven strings and that, that's fretted and then on a bass violin because in fact the cello hadn't established itself in London yet it was it was to come in the next century um, and, and the bass violin is like a cello but just a bigger version and with thicker strings so it makes a very sort of earthy sound so you have he can he can play between the two sounds of the very refined viola de gamba and then the more earthy uh, bass violin and then we have three theorbos, which are the giant lutes, and that's literally what they are. They're, they're lutes that had long strings added to them so that they could play very big diapason bass notes. So they're, they're not, the, the bass notes are not fretted, so they have to choose which notes they have. And then the main body of the instrument is fretted like a lute, so they can play, play chords. And one of the reasons the strings were added at the beginning of the 17th century in Italy was actually so that the singers could hear so it's a little bit like a modern modern day foldback system, and in fact the lute players would would face the stage, or rather face the singers in whichever formation they were, to to, to give them more support. Um, and then we have two harpsichords. I'm playing one, and Chris Hopkins is playing the other, and and a chamber organ. So we combine those different sounds throughout throughout the evening to, to, to make the continuo numbers really come to life. Then we have the, the usual sort of string size you know, um, and the, there's some beautiful writing for the st strings but as I did say to the, the orchestra on the first orchestra rehearsal this is this is actually a very good show to have in repertoire with the Meister singers <laughs> because there you don't put your violin, violin down for two hours in this you rarely play for more than two minutes at a time <laughs> <laughs> and we have the beautiful woodwind, the oboes and bassoons from the ENO orchestra recorders as well to uh, Purcell actually writes some recorder music in, within the piece and we've also added them to certain other moments to make some moments of beauty and we have percussion and timpani and Tog who's playing the, the natural trumpet which adds a beautiful colour to the, to the orchestra.
and you've raised the orchestra for the second time so that we can actually see them all, but presumably this has a, a powerful effect on the whole sense of the sound world. It has a huge benefit to, to this music in, in, in this wonderful theatre. Um, the, the orchestra always carries in the theatre, but it's the articulation that gets lost if, if they're on the floor, because you, you, in order to make something really sparkle in this period of music, you have to articulate, that's, that's make lots of different lengths of notes to, to make long and short, and, it, and there's everything in between long and short. And if they're having to, if they're right on the, the, the bottom of the pit, they have to play so short in order for it to sound as if it's articulated that it all becomes a bit extreme. Whereas the, the, the wonderful thing is being raised up, there's, there's a delicacy to the articulations and to the sound, and it, 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 you can really f feel feel the chamber music element of the of the piece because this music is all amplified chamber music in the sense that there's a, a relationship from stage to pit to audience and back again in that beautiful circle. Lawrence Cumming, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> and I have to say, working with this guy is thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> The, 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 everyone, if you're regular uh, uh, comers to these pre-performances, you will know that we make, make people not only talk for their supper, but perform for their supper. Lawrence is going to accompany in a moment he, uh, our, our last guest, who is the tenor David Webb, who is uh, covering the role of the conquistador Don Pedro de Alvarado. Would you please welcome our last guest, David Webb. David, tell us who you think and who Don Pedro is. Uh, well, one of the great things about uh, researching a character like Don Pedro de Alvarado is that he actually existed, um, which means you've got a great basis for a character. A lot of times in operas you'll be given a generic prince or something like that, whereas at least with this you can find out what the guy was like. Um, he uh, grew up in quite an uh, interesting background, really. He had... He had a twin sister, four brothers, and a half-brother. And I think, as a result of that, I think he, he probably struggled for attention. And as a result... You sound like that, a Freudian that, nightmare. Well, you're going to find out what happens, yeah. <laughs> he, he was an interesting character. Um, and looking through lots of papers about him, the words ruthless, um, driven, and uh, violent... Uh, are words that come up quite a lot. So, um, yeah, it's a fun show. <laughs> but, it, but is he simply a ruthless, single-minded killer? Um, well, later on in life, he becomes the governor of Guatemala, and I think I, I've read that even at that point, he still still um, would kind of get a step away from the desk, as it were, and still go out and try and hunt and, um, you know, attack. He, some, of the, some of the stories I've read about things that he did to the Mayans, he... Um, you know, he, he cut their hands off just for the gold that was on their hands it, it, and let them die like that. I mean, that's, it's awful, absolutely awful, barbaric behaviour. And he, he, seemed to have, he seemed to have no conscience whatsoever about it. And um, it, as a result, it's obviously for a character, it's, it's a, you find yourself in quite a dark place sometimes in rehearsals where you're trying to think what this person must be going through, but also not allowing yourself to become that person because it could be a very interesting rehearsal period. <laughs> so, so, so have you decided that he never really shares um, the wife, the Indian wife that he marries, the Princess Tekel Watson's ambition, that somehow it ought to be possible for these two races to live together? Um, well, I think he, he marries twice outside, doesn't he? He marries Beatrice and someone else whose name I forget. And, um, and then 
Don Luisa is, he has three children. We, we only hear about one, but he actually has three children in the end with um, Don Luisa. And they, they are seen as a life partnership between them. Um, I don't know whether or not he, he, he's doing that for the good of, of Spain or, or the Mayans, or if he is just a self-centered person that is out for himself. I can't, I, I'm not sure. What do you think, Peter? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I did was give him the song you're about to hear, because the things that he writes himself are horrifying, and the things that people say about him are horrifying. But you think somebody has to know in their heart so I offered him this incredible George Herbert poem, which is one of the monuments of poetry in England, set by Henry Purcell, and it's one of the most overwhelming testaments of musical confession of somebody who's so not proud of what they've done. And the opening words, with sick and famished eyes... One of the sources says that Don Pedro saw neither child nor pregnant woman. <laughs> and so it's appropriate that he begins with sick and famished eyes. I think we should simply hear it. Thank you. Oh, what flames, what heat 
shames. Consider, Lord, Lord, bow thine ear and hear. Lord Jesus, thou didst bow thy tongue. I can think of no better way of raising the curtain, turning on the lights for the production you're about to see. So, thank you all for being a wonderfully patient audience, but thank you to our four guests. Wonderful conversation, all of you. Thank you very much. Indeed.